Hey, what's up, everybody? This is a special Gray Zone Live. I'm speaking to you from Gray Zone headquarters in the swamp, and we have initiated Operation Gaza Truth Flood to provide context, history, and facts that you're not going to see anywhere, anywhere close to mainstream media, obviously, and alt media, which is much of which is doing a terrible job on this. Um, we're going to try to do something different today. I'm joined by my colleague, Wyatt Reed. How's it going, Wyatt? Hanging in there. How about yourself, Max? The same. Um, obviously, the events of October 7th shocked everyone, not the least Israel's overhyped, overestimated intelligence and state security services, as well as its military. And we're going to talk about that and what has followed, which has been uh, the carpet bombing of the Gaza Strip and the continued rocketing of Israeli population centers. Uh, and there still appears to be gun battles taking place in what is considered what is southern Israel um, and which people in the Gaza Strip refer to as the northern settlements uh, where their grandparents and great-grandparents used to live before they were ethnically cleansed. And that's kind of a context that's been completely left out. But before we go back to in, in back into history, Wyatt, uh, give us an update of what's going on. And, and everyone, thanks so much for joining us, especially, of, especially those of you joining from abroad. Uh, we really appreciate you being here. We're going to bring in Anya Parampil later, and we're going to at least be here for the next two hours. But Wyatt, uh, what, are, what are you seeing? What are the latest developments that you're looking at? Yeah, obviously a very fluid situation, very dynamic. Everything changes hour to hour here. The latest, and I'd say most consequential developments, um, really kind of the main thing that, that we've been talking about recently over the past couple of hours, this announcement by Hamas, which is now warning that an Israeli captive will be executed each time the IDF launches another strike against civilian target in Gaza that's being reported uh, in Al Jazeera, other outlets. Uh, we have a spokesman from Hamas on the record as saying, quote, any targeting of innocent civilians without warning will be met regretfully by executing one of the captives in our custody, and we will be forced to broadcast this execution. The spokesman went on to say, we regret this decision, but we hold the Zionist enemy and their leadership responsible for this. So that obviously comes after some 100 to 130 uh, Israelis, and both civilians in, in as much as one can be a civilian in Israel, which has mandatory military service and active duty soldiers. Uh, we know both of those uh, groups of people have been taken captive. Uh, some about 100 or so uh, are supposed to be uh, under the custody of Hamas with another 30 under the custody of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group. Uh, and so we do have some indication, though, that this may not be enough to prevent any incursion by the Israelis. They've put out a statement on uh, the Israeli army radio 
earlier today saying if there is accurate intelligence information about the location of the Israeli captives, certainly Israel will refrain from attacking that location. But as long as such information does not exist, all Hamas targets will be attacked, basically kind of giving a green light to Israeli forces to strike uh, with impunity and just kind of assume that there are no captives being held at any site unless otherwise uh, informed. So uh, the latest that I have is Israel is now claiming that it has since retaken uh, these southern settlements near Gaza that were seized by Hamas uh, a few days ago, the morning of October 7th. The IDF now says it's officially at war for the first time since the 1973 war, the Yom Kippur War, 50 years ago. And it is carrying out an operation that it calls Iron Swords, calling up uh, uh, 300,000 reservists. And that's kind of an action that I think is likely to effectively paper over any remaining splits that we might have seen lingering after this massive protest action against Netanyahu's attempted judicial reforms. Um, so, so far, what this has looked like, at least on the Palestinian side, an extremely heavy casualties um, in kind of an unprecedented bombing campaign by Israel. We didn't necessarily see it to quite this extent in uh, recent years, 2014. Um, especially we saw heavy bombing, but we I don't think we really saw quite what we're seeing Today, the Palestinian Health Ministry says at least 550 Palestinians have died, and that number includes 91 children. Um, and that's that's uh, obviously a number that we expect to rise going forward. The Israeli side, meanwhile, is saying that up to 800 Israelis have died as a result of ongoing hostilities. This is a number that I'm not sure uh, to what extent we trust it. Uh, there, I think, is, is probably a good incentive to overestimate the casualties on the Israeli side, um, but uh, we'll get a clearer sense of that, I think, going forward. And really, as we speak, this bombing campaign that Israel is carrying out uh, is taking place. Uh, residential buildings all across Gaza being flattened, um, and we have some indication from the Israeli troop movements and from statements from various Israeli officials that a ground invasion of Gaza is imminent. Wyatt, here's Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, who's sort of hanging on by a thread politically, declaring it has started, Israel will win. And he is, this is the video that Netanyahu has elected to show to the world in his first statement about this war, is video of Israel flattening residential buildings and buildings all across the Gaza Strip. Um, this is Netanyahu's message. Uh, the, in, and what we're hearing from inside Gaza, um, I've been to Gaza several times, but you know you can follow people inside Gaza, is that many of these buildings are being flattened without the so-called knock on the roof to warn residents. Buildings, houses are coming down on residents without warning. In the uh, Jabalia refugee camp, uh, 19 members of the same family were killed earlier uh, yesterday in an Israeli strike where they were told that the strike would hit their neighbor's house. And again, this is the prime minister of Israel's message to the world. Uh, now, we've also heard from the chief of staff of the Israeli military. This is, this is the, oh, sorry, this is the Israeli defense minister. 
I've ordered a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no fuel, no water. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we act accordingly. And I don't know what kind of species keeps humans in a cage indefinitely, but that, and then refers to them as human animals when they try to get out. But that is the Israeli defense minister pledging not only a siege on Gaza, but to deprive them of the basic needs for life for maintaining, for example, hospitals to treat their wounded. And this has gone without comment so far by the U.S. State Department or the EU, which has cut off, vowed to cut off all of its aid programs to Palestine, including the Palestinian Authority, which has nothing to do with this. Um, we haven't got into the events of October 7th, Wyatt, but are there any other, any things you, and anything else you think we should be brought up to date on? Well, I would just say the residents of Gaza have been warned by Israeli officials to leave Gaza. Uh, it's not clear to me what they mean when they say that, because really the only way that they could leave is just by swimming into the ocean. And we know that they're right. not allowed to travel more than, I'd say, 20 kilometers off of the coast before they can expect to be shelled or attacked, otherwise gunned down by Israeli forces. So they've been told to leave, but uh, obviously where exactly they should leave to is kind of left up to the imagination. And uh, here we have Israelis who are being portrayed as sort of history's ultimate victims on CNN, which has not even bothered to interview Palestinians inside Gaza. And they are flocking to Ben-Gurion International Airport. One homemade rocket has hit the airport, apparently. Here's some of the scenes inside. There's just complete chaos. Thousands of people are trying to leave the country. And I think it's important to make the point that the majority of people in the Gaza Strip, something like over something like 90, 80% of them are classified officially as refugees by the United Nations. They, first of all, are stateless, but they came from what is now Israel and are being warehoused in the Gaza Strip because for one reason, they are not Jews. And Israel is the self-proclaimed Jewish state. So if it would take them in, allow them to come in and open up the warehouse or that prison, they th there would be no more Jewish state because they would lose the demographic war. So they have to be there in this warehouse where they become, as the um, Israeli defense minister Yoav Gallant said, are human animals. They are refugees with nowhere to go. Israelis who are being portrayed in U.S. corporate media as refugees, as soon as, as soon as they start to experience some of the fear and death that Palestinians have been experiencing for in Gaza for the last 20 years, but for generations, they head to the airport with tickets to countries where it appears they're, they have a second passport or they have relatives who can take them in and they're allowed to get in. If Palestinians could leave Gaza, they still could not travel to Europe. They couldn't even travel to Egypt where they're treated as fifth class or second class citizens as well and hated. They have, so they're, these aren't refugees and there's complete chaos at Ben Gurion International Airport. There's chaos all around Israel's frontiers where we've seen friendly fire incidents where 
Um, Israeli soldiers are firing at Israeli civilians who they believe to be either fighters from Hezbollah or Hamas's Al-Qassam brigades. And the media only has its lens trained on the Israeli side. And another point about this airport scene that I think is important to make is that during the second intifada in 2001, when Israel destroyed the only airport that Palestinians ever had, Yasser Arafat International Airport in the Gaza Strip, I've actually seen it. They bombed it in 2001. Then they brought bulldozers in 2002 and chewed up its runway. And then when Gaza was put under siege, Palestinians who lived in that area in southern Rafah, which is extremely poor near the border with Egypt, went to that runway and took what was left of it to get building materials for their homes because building material was not being led into the Gaza Strip. So that's the Palestinian experience with airports, with being forced to flee. And, and, and as you said, Wyatt, they're being, leaflets are being dropped on Gaza telling them to flee. Um, what else are we seeing today as far as Israeli attacks on Gaza? Well, we've seen a number of attacks on medical facilities, a number of attacks on residential buildings, a number of high-rise apartments that have been brought down, including obviously the, the building and the video that was shared by the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, appeared to be a residential building as well. Uh, so we've seen a direct hit on Gaza's International Eye Hospital. That's uh, that building, I believe. Uh, the Ministry of Health is reporting that Beit Hanun Hospital is currently out of service due to heavy shelling, which is preventing both uh, patients and uh, doctors and nurses from approaching the building. Uh, so we're really kind of seeing an intensification of that threat by the Israeli defense minister uh, that this is the residents of Gaza will basically go without uh, any of life's necessities until further notice. Uh, that is kind of being made clear, I think, with the uh, shelling activities that we've seen so far. Um, and there's obviously a lot of misinformation, kind of disinformation. Who knows what at this point? People could just be vying for attention on social media. Uh, but you've seen a lot of reports suggesting that all-out hostilities have broken out between Hezbollah and the IDF in the north. Uh, as far as I'm aware, that has not happened in a direct, sustained way yet. We have seen uh, artillery exchanges so far, and at least one member of Hezbollah is reported to have been killed by Israeli shelling. Uh, but if, if that has indeed uh, kind of devolved into a more serious uh, escalation in terms of the violence, uh, I have not seen any reports on that yet, so I, I'd say we should kind of withhold judgment on that end so far. Yeah, well, they're saying it's being said that a ground invasion is inevitable. Um, let's first revisit, let's go back a little bit to October 7th and revisit some of what took place there uh, because this was something that I and wasn't surprised at all by. To be honest, I wasn't surprised that the resistance factions inside Gaza were able to pull this off, but somehow it managed to surprise the Israeli security establishment. Um, and, and also the, 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 the sheer violence of the attack didn't surprise me. Uh, that's something I'll, I'll get into as well. If you actually understand what it's like inside, what it's like 
just being raised inside Gaza and going through that whole experience. Uh, but this is some of this is this is your images from inside the Nahalaz military base, which has been used since 1953 to maintain a kind of siege on the refugees who are stuffed into the enclave known as Gaza. And these are the Sayara al to an area where dozens of Israeli Merkava tanks are kept, uh, US-made uh, Humvee vehicles are kept. This was a massive, massive blow to the perception of Israel as an invincible army and to the perception of Israel's intelligence forces. Sayar al-Quds is connected to the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is a faction inside Gaza which does not really participate in politics. It's dedicated solely to resisting occupation uh, and is not a rival of Hamas. It's more like an ancillary group that is the second most powerful military force inside Gaza. But this was not a Hamas attack, by the way. And Humorous Israeli soldiers were killed inside there in hand-to-hand -hand combat. They were completely unprepared. That's a US, looks like a U.S.-made Hummer. Some of these vehicles were taken back to the Gaza Strip. And there's other combat that I could show, but I'm afraid that somehow YouTube will punish us for doing so. Uh, many of these fighters wore GoPro cameras and showed themselves taking out other Israeli military bases. Uh, kibbutzim were invaded and captives were taken. I mean, we're told something like 130 captives were taken. I'm sh I, I, I have a feeling that's an overestimate and there's no real solid uh, count on that. And the number of dead, of Israeli dead, keeps going up. And I think that's a major overestimate too, although I think the number of dead is uh, is higher than what we've seen before when Israel was, for example, in 20, uh, 2009, 2010, Israel was able to kill something like 800 Palestinians, most of whom were civilians, and less than 10 Israelis died in that assault. Um, Operation Cast Lead. Uh, we saw Operation Pillar of Cloud the following year similar death, uh, a, d a disproportionate death count. We saw in 2014, Israel kill 551 women and children. I was able to go into the rubble after that assault and talk to people who lost their entire families. We're talking about like 20 people killed in one strike, 12 people killed in another strike, sons killed. And Israel, for the first time in 2014, actually lost significant numbers of soldiers in the Battle of Shujaia, when it attempted to invade and take territory east of Gaza City, the resistance factions, they were heavily prepared. And we saw the um, beginning of combined arms assaults by the Gaza resistance factions. So they were able to repel the Israeli attack, which came in uh, with repurposed US armored vehicles that whose armor was easily easy to penetrate with sapper teams, sniper teams, and then face-to-face -face combat. Israeli soldiers are just not really that experienced in face-to-face -face combat, and they're very casualty shy uh, in contrast to the Gaza factions. But we also saw, um, for example, the Zikim naval base in Israel penetrated by a diver team from Gaza for the first time 
and for and now we've seen uh, actual attack boat teams take Israeli beaches and attack Israeli naval bases. We saw the hang glider teams, which was unprecedented. Although they're in the past, the PFLP faction, I think in 1970 or 71, organized some hang glider attacks. These were much more successful, and these hang glider teams were used sort of as an advanced team to clear the way for these infantry attacks. Yeah. But these they were, were basically used as paratroopers. You know, yes. they were used instead of a, a paratrooper team. And and we also and then motorcycle the teams. But basically, yeah. it's a bunch of dudes on motorcycles, homemade hang gliders with fans, and boats that are like fishing boats with outboard motors, overwhelming what is said to be the fourth most powerful military in the world with a blue water navy and nuclear weapons overwhelming them and actually taking large amounts of territory and using i mean also adopting some of the low end technologies that we've seen pioneered in this russia ukraine conflict dropping grenades from drones you know extremely cheap but extremely effective in terms of taking out machine gun nests in terms of taking out uh, you know watchtowers uh, they just seem to have a very much an, an informational advantage that uh, for all the you know capabilities of the much vaunted Shin Bet, uh, much vaunted Israeli intelligence, uh, they seem to be completely caught, uh, completely flat-footed. You know, totally caught off guard, uh, totally unable to really address this for the first twelve to twenty-four hours at all. Um, and so now they're claiming that they've taken back these territories. Uh, but it took them, what, three days? Um, you know, even assuming that they're telling the truth, that all of these have really come uh, firmly back under their control, uh, that in and of itself is just a major loss of prestige. Yeah, now here's a homemade drone from the Gaza Strip dropping a rudimentary mortar on an Israeli Merkava tank, which is used to maintain the siege. Uh, you'll see these tanks puttering about the periphery of Gaza from inside and behind the apartheid fence that surrounds Gaza. This is a direct hit on an Israeli tank with a mortar shell with a drone made inside Gaza. Direct hit that's clearly seeing all of the ammunition burn off. That's that's like a yep. fatal hit. Yep, and the entire crew was taken captive. Yeah. So this is, I mean, and, and, and these... Um, Drones from Gaza were also used to attack Israeli military bases. These are, again, I mean, there's a, there's actually a memorial in Gaza City to the drone that they were able to use by reverse engineering Israel's Hermes drone, which is exported onto the international market and was one of was made by Elbit Systems, the state arms company that pioneered the first unmanned aerial vehicle. And so they've learned from their assailants they've learned from their jailers the prisoners are learning from their jailers and that was a massive blow to israeli prestige when because the merkava tank is really the only major platform that the u.s allows israel yeah. to make because israel's required to buy all of our platforms the f-16 the f-35 to fuel oh. our arms industry and it well, just and it's got described roasted. it's described as the pride of of the israeli military right it's described in the same way that we talk about Germany's Leopard tank, Britain's Challenger tank, the U.S. Abrams tank. You know, that's that's Israel's tank. Um, and it's been held up as this kind of gold standard. Um, and now it's being taken out. 
by, you know, 20 feet up from a, from a drone with a $200 grenade. So you, the Gaza Strip is the most one, possibly the most surveilled area on earth. And when you go into Gaza, you understand this paranoia. Uh, there's a fear of collaborators everywhere. When you leave the Gaza Strip at Nahalaz, the crossing, which was um, successfully attacked, this hyper-militarized crossing, uh, one of the last messages you, you see from the Palestinian authorities is a warning against becoming a snitch. Because often when Palestinians leave, the Israelis will say, well, if you want to come in and get a work permit and go to Jerusalem, you have to snitch for us. Tell us where what you know the uh, Al-Qassam brigades are doing. Where are they training? It's, Gaza's honeycombed with collaborators. If uh, and and then they, Israel has a unit, Unit eighty two hundred, which is their cyber spy unit, cyber tech unit. They surveil closely the communications of people in Gaza on their phones. They try to find out who might be potentially vulnerable. Maybe they are a homosexual or a drug user, and then they use that to ply them. They say we won't reveal this information if you if you snitch for us. Gaza has a very sophisticated counterintelligence service, which seeks to determine who the snitches are. Often they're executed or punished, but sometimes they're just allowed to continue to operate and they're used to feed Israel false information. All along, that's what I think was happening here. And now we see it from a Reuters report, uh, citing a source said to be within Hamas, that Hamas leadership was telling Israel they're only concerned with having um, you know, with having an economic peace, with getting work permits for people there, with getting money in from Qatar. And Israel fell for it. They believed it. And all along the Al-Qassam brigades, the armed wing of Hamas and the Al-Quds brigade of Palestinian Islamic Jihad was training. They set up a mock Israeli settlement inside Gaza and were training for these assaults. This makes total sense to me. And it would make total sense that Israel was falling for it and at a time when Israel started concentrating its military in the occupied West Bank, where the Palestinian authorities starting to, their little, you know, Vichy regime that they've set up there started to lose control, particularly in the north around Jenin, they, they didn't have as much military in the south. And that was the time for this surprise attack. So it was an intelligence failure, but it really wasn't something that Israel couldn't have predicted. They were just simply overconfident and constantly underestimating those who they think they pacified and suppressed with one assault after another. And an intelligence it, failure, but not an intelligent failure. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, you go into, you go into Gaza, when you go in, you see their, the extent to which they're surveilled and contained through just brute force. Um, the first time I went in, I was shocked to see a remote controlled machine gun to my right pointing into this um, 300 to 600 meter buffer zone, which is around Beit Hanun in the north, uh, where we just saw the hospital get attacked. They're under heavy bombardment in Beit Hanun now. And that remote controlled machine gun is controlled by soldiers in the Negev desert who can, can, can shoot anyone approaching that fence. Uh, when Anya Parampil and me, we're leaving Gaza in 2018. We actually had to duck and going through the buffer zone because Israeli soldiers started shooting over the head of Bedouin shepherds who had gotten too close to that wall. And yet these um, attack forces 
were able to not only penetrate through that wall, but penetrate into Israeli military bases and, and get on Israeli tanks, attack Israeli soldiers. Now, Israel, Israel is planning to send those soldiers into the Gaza Strip. I can tell you, based on what I saw in 2014 and my understanding of the capacity of these factions, which isn't like an expert level, but we saw what they were able to do, Israel is going to be taking casualties and it could lead to a societal crisis. If they try to go into Gaza City, it could be disastrous. And of course, hundreds and hundreds of Palestinian civilians were die, will die. And so we're looking at a disastrous scenario. The State Department has just changed uh, their messaging from calling for some kind of ceasefire and prisoner exchange to Israel has a right to defend itself. And of course, they're being pushed by the Beltway press and corporate media to give Israel all the latitude it wants. The Pentagon has given is uh, authorizing a munitions shipment to Israel to keep bombing residential compounds, to keep carpet bombing Gaza. Uh, I guess Wyatt, they're in competition with They've won the competition with Ukraine for U.S.'s depleted munitions stocks. Well, well, who knows? We we do know that the U.S. keeps a massive supply of artillery shells in Israel and that it's been seriously depleting that supply over the past year and a half by sending a large amount of it to Ukraine. We don't know how much was in it to begin with and we don't know how much remains. Uh, but I would I would I would imagine uh, just based on, you know, the kind of uh, commitment that the U.S. military has made to Kiev, Kiev is, is that, uh, yeah, they probably are heavily depleted on that end. Um, a, couple, a couple other angles here I think are worth noting, right? If this full-on ground invasion does materialize, there's a pretty good chance that that will correspond to uh, Hezbollah opening up a second front. Uh, they have basically announced as such that that if uh, there is some full-on ground invasion of Gaza, that they are likely to uh, begin an attack uh, from the north on Israel. Um, and that possibility has already prompted the IDF to deploy troops to the northern border, um, leading obviously to that the death of that Hezbollah member I referenced earlier. And then the U.S. is also kind of getting in on the action. They moved the largest carrier strike group, the USS Gerald Ford, the most advanced uh, aircraft carrier in the arsenal that is now off of the Israeli coast. Uh, NBC News is describing this as a blunt message to Iran and Hezbollah. Uh, they cited an anonymous US official who reportedly said that this naval deployment is, quote, all about deterring Iran. So we see basically the uh, skeleton of a regional war yep. uh, kind of yep. flashing before our eyes. It's like an x-ray scan of like, oh, this is what it would look like in the coming days uh, if nobody decides to pump the brakes, if everybody who is now using this kind of maximalist rhetoric, because why wouldn't they be? Hamas has accomplished more in three days of skirmishes than uh, basically all of Palestinian nonviolence did over 50 years. Uh, right. what, what incentive would they have to stop and then the Israelis kind of feel like their back is to the wall. They have pushed this unrelenting sort of like far right edge of just, you know, Palestine is all Israel. Uh, and that's kind of the mainstream sentiment now. And how do you how do you negotiate with people you don't even recognize as humans? 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's no real incentive here from either side to try to negotiate, no incentive to look for, you know, will our, will our opponent actually treat us like humans? Because, you know, that's just not, not really in the works. And that's what um, Khalid Michel said, the, the, the head of Hamas's Politburo, Khalid Michel, Michel said this operation is aimed at altering the strategic equation because you've seen Gaza, first of all, put under siege in 2007 following a devastating uh, pacification of the Second Intifada, which was designed to end the, which was designed to uh, release Palestinians from occupation, force negotiations. And actually, Gaza had 9,000 settlers living in it who were taking up over 40% of the water and often leading to closures of half of the entire strip. 9,000 settlers before 2007, they left as part of the Israeli disengagement because Hamas was, was altering the strategic situation there through the use of violence. Whereas the Palestinians in the West Bank, they got the Palestinian Authority and pacification, occupation, expansion of settlements. So there was a concession. And then after in 2007, the Gaza Strip was placed under siege. That's when Israel started to bring in the heavy weapons. That's when they started to be able to bomb them with 2,000 pound and 5,000 pound bombs on residential apartment blocks, killing entire families. That's when they started lobbing howitzers in. We saw it, Operation Summer Rain in 2006, then, the capture of Gilad Shalit, assault one soldier, was designed to alter the strategic equation to at least get some of the thousands and thousands of Palestinian prisoners out. It got over 1,000 Palestinian prisoners out in 2011. And it was that year when Israel assassinated the Hamas officials who negotiated that release. It also was preceded by Operation Cast Lead, as I said, which led to something like 800 deaths, mostly civilians inside the Gaza Strip. That would, and, but none of this was leading anywhere towards the relaxation of the siege. Operation Pillar of Cloud in uh, 20, I think it was 2012, 2013. Then Operation Protective Edge in 2014. Then we saw in 2021, another assault on Gaza that left 150 dead. Uh, earlier uh, this year in May, an assault on the Gaza Strip that left over 100 dead. Uh, an entire special needs center went down in rubble on the heads of its occupants. And the West said nothing. The siege wasn't relaxed. Very little was happening. There was very little progress. And so the point was to alter the strategic situation. Then looking at it from the, the bigger picture, uh, the U.S. is weaker than ever in the region. And at the same time, the U.S. is acting like a global hegemon. I put a lot of responsibility for what took place on Trump, on Donald Trump specifically, uh, for giving over his Middle East policy to the Likudnik billionaire Sheldon Adelson and Jared Kushner and Mike Pompeo and Netanyahu himself authorizing the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, head of the IRGC. Uh, this was, you could see this partly as revenge for that. The Abraham Accords uh, normalizing between Israel and the Gulf states, the completely undemocratic Gulf states that are the that that, that are determined to sell out the Palestinians. Uh, for for a few pieces, for a few pieces of uh, U.S. petrodollar, that that was the Abraham Accords was specifically designed to put the Palestinians in the ice box to just ice out the Palestinians. And so this is about uh, the, these attempts to normalize over the heads of the Palestinians. 
this was on, this was on Trump for canceling diplomacy with Iran and starting the policy of maximum pressure, which has completely backfired. Iran was only going to escalate. It was going to continue to support its allies in the region. And yes, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, they do receive support from Iran. Hamas receives some support from Iran, training, logistics. And why, why don't they have a right to ask regional partners for support when Israel is being supported with an entire US carrier group, the biggest U.S. carrier group with the U.S. USS Gerald Ford coming to defend them against a bunch of gorillas with mopeds and hang gliders and fishing boats. Sorry, that right is reserved exclusively for the Ukrainians. No one else may have that right ever. It's all been totally monopolized. All of that right is used up. And the, so the U.S. doesn't, and, and Biden has mostly maintained Donald Trump's policies. Yeah. So Jake Sullivan, the genius Yale University graduate and former and NSC director of the Biden administration, said one week ago that because of Biden's policies, the Middle East has never been quieter. There's never been more quiet in the Middle East. And he's celebrating that because quiet means the pacification of Palestinians right. and the suppression of all of the yearnings of Arab people to stop being colonized by this imperial force that uses Israel, in the words of uh, former Secretary of State Alexander Haig, as an unsinkable aircraft carrier. Well, he's on one hand, he's bragging about having like cowed the Arab masses into silence yeah. and submission. And on the other hand, he's basically taking credit for just continuing Trump's policies, because that's that's really what Biden's Mideast policy has been marked by. For in you know, 90% of cases, just taking what Trump is do, has did and then continuing it, tweaking it slightly to maybe get a, a deal with Iran again. Um, but, you know, by and large, he's just talking about pushing these these same kind of maximum uh, pressure sanctions. And I will say, you know, that was kind of arguably the biggest casualty of the weekend's conflict was the so-called normalization process because you have this statement from the Saudi foreign ministry that's unequivocally pro-Palestine, right? It does not spend even a single word worrying about the victims in Israel. Uh, they said the, they, they emphasized how the Saudi government had previously, quote, warned of the dangers of the explosion of the situation as a result of the continued occupation, the deprivation of the Palestinian people and their legitimate rights and the repetition of systemic provocations against its sanctities. Um, so they basically, uh, you know, explicitly are not denouncing these attacks, uh, very clearly siding with Palestinians. And this is being lamented in the New York Times as, you know, kind of a, a loss in the normalization bracket. Uh, they said that the statement took Mr. Biden and several, several of his top aides by surprise and angered American lawmakers who have supported the negotiations uh specifically lindsey graham the republican senator from south carolina who said uh if you want a normal relationship with the united states this is not a normal statement you don't want to be in the cheering section with iran and hezbollah um you know and from israel's perspective that's certainly true from the u.s uniparty perspective that's certainly true uh from the rest of the world i get less and less of a sense that they really care what the lindsey grahams and anthony blinkens of the world have to say about them 
because who are they? And, you know, now they're not really even calling the shots economically anymore. How can Israel possibly guarantee its own, you know, how can it deal with Israel guarantee Saudis, uh, the Saudi Arabian security when the Americans can't even guarantee the Israelis security? And right. Yeah, right. Right. And and they they weren't able to with the Patriot batteries against uh, Houthi ballistic missiles that were hitting the Aramco, Aramco fields, so it, it 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 doesn't add up. It, this is a this so this is a moment that I think will be remembered in the shift to a multipolar world order. Uh, it is indeed. I know there's a f- kind of a fake shady story about the, about how Iran planned this attack, but I think this will be a moment in the transition uh, from Iran itself being a country that's been punished with sanctions to a regional power that actually is able to shift the balance of power on the ground through its allies. And one of those allies, these are not proxies, by the way. Hamas is not a proxy of Iran. They have their own strategic imperatives and their own culture. They're actually Sunni. So they're not proxies it's not this it's not like the way the us uses the ukrainian military but their allies hezbollah they are shia they actually it was the shia clerics in southern lebanon that helped inspire the iranian revolution in 1979 uh, but they are allies as well and they have their own objectives they have their own strategy that they develop in concert with the irgc and other forces in iran and Hezbollah is so much more powerful than anything that the Al-Qassam brigades can muster under siege. If they enter this battle, we are going to see a calamity for Israel like we've never seen before. So, I th- And Israel knows that. They don't want this. 2006, Israel unveiled its Dahia doctrine and attempted to destroy Hezbollah. The Dahia doctrine is based on the idea that by killing lots of civilians, it's a deliberate attempt to kill lots of civilians, named for the neighborhood, it just, Dahia just means neighborhood, in southern Beirut, where Hezbollah had its political offices and a lot of its power base. They leveled that neighborhood, and they thought it would end Hezbollah. Then they sent in an invasion of soldiers. The the tanks, the Merkava tanks, became trapped in the rocky passes in southern Lebanon, and then they were easily taken out with cornet rockets that Hezbollah obtained either through Iran or on the black market. And in face-to-face confrontations, Israeli soldiers lost many lives. They received a bloody nose and they walked out of Lebanon. They literally marched out without having achieved anything. Hezbollah since then has increased its ability to wage targeted strikes. We saw in 2006, Hezbollah severely damaged an Israeli cruiser class ship with, I think, a French Exocet missile. And they are able to now target, they have a target bank they are able to hit mil- major military structures inside Israel, and they have an endless supply of Katusha rockets, which can reach the city of Haifa, which is one of Israel's largest cities in the north. This would be a disaster for Israel to start a war with Hezbollah and to fight on two fronts in Gaza and southern Lebanon in an army which is so casualty averse. I, I can't see them doing it. And what I know is that Hezbollah has at least kind of an informal treaty with the leadership in Gaza, Hamas, to not let Gaza fall. 
So if Israel is going to th think it thinks it's going to march into Gaza, take over as Ariel Sharon attempted to do in the early 1980s in Lebanon and set up some kind of puppet government where Israel failed massively there, they're dreaming. What we have here is a situation where there are scores of Israeli captives, many civilians, some of them are soldiers, many of them are soldiers. And Israel in 2011 negotiated one, for one captive over 1,000 Palestinian prisoners. I don't think they exact, they, they're sure they know what to do. But do one we, thing, how, how, many, yeah. how many Palestinians are currently imprisoned? in Israel. Do we know it's some 5,000 something? Um, I'm not sure if you, you know the exact figure, but I mean, what we've seen proposed is basically that Hamas would liberate all of the uh, um, all of the people that it, it's taken in return for all of the Palestinians that the Israelis have in their custody being released. It would obviously be at a much more favorable ratio to the Israelis than the last time just on the by, you know, by virtue of the number of of uh, hostages that the Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad have taken, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I, I, what, what I, I've seen reports that some soldiers were killed in an Israeli strike on a Hamas political office building, so they've actually placed some of those captives in key target buildings and Israel must know that they're willing to continue attacking them. Then you have the psychological and political dimension. Um, I want to cover this from both sides and uh, show uh, a little bit of video about it. And then we're going to bring Anya Parampil in. Um, from the Israeli point of view, they are uh, indoctrinated into a military culture possibly the most militarized culture on earth and taught through the public education system that they are facing every day a possible second Holocaust and that the Palestinians want to continue the work of Hitler. That is what uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has ex explicitly said when he has attempted to blame the Palestinian Mufti of Jerusalem during the 1940s for the Holocaust. And they, and many of them, not all of them, see what took place where civilians were killed and taken captive as a continuation of, of sort of Jewish genocide. And they don't understand, they think they were being attacked because they were Jews. And you see hosts on Fox News repeat this message that never again is now. Uh, this is sort of in order to erase the history of Palestinian suffering and the real root of the conflict which well, is Zionist settler colonialism and also to offload any responsibility that Netanyahu has for having encouraged this eventuality right. directly onto the Palestinian resistance right it's it's just you know it's it's like violence with no cause or or you know no provocation is is the new phrase that that they're bandying around they got tired of using that on on Russia, I suppose, and now, uh, oh man, how who hasn't said this at this point? The number of of U.S. officials who have described uh, the, described the Hamas attacks as unprovoked. Uh, the White House, uh, Hakeem Jeffrey, House Minority Leader, Jim Jordan in the running for House Speaker, uh, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, 
Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State, John Fetterman, our favorite uh, member of Congress, Senator Cyborg. Mark Kelly, <laughs> Cyborg John Fett, uh, Richie Torre, Torres, our second favorite Cyborg, Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, and uh, our own personal favorite presidential candidate, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., have all used the phrase unprovoked, um, basically doing their best to to delegitimize any claims that um, Palestinians have in terms of pointing directly to the Israeli strategy of empowering Hamas, specifically empowering Hamas as a counterbalance to Fatah, to the PLO, um, an intentional strategy that we see rivaled um, by people, you know, like Hillary Clinton, obviously, Al-Qaeda is on our side on Syria, Hillary Clinton, who herself did a similar thing when she employed the Pied Piper strategy that uh, got helped get Donald Trump elected. Well, yeah, before we go into the origins of Hamas and, you know, they were they actually were elected in Palestinian right. elections into which 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 the U.S. encouraged Palestinians to hold. Uh, and they won mostly in the West Bank. That's partly why they installed Abbas. But before we get I mean, I, I just want to stay focused on what's happening now, which is that from the Israeli point of view, this was, as you said, totally unprovoked. Just just like what you see from the Ukrainian nationalist point of view, Russia going into the Donbass, totally unprovoked, uh, because there's been a systematic propaganda effort to decontextualize the conflict in order to remove its origins, uh, the real origins, and to militarize the public. And also the rise of religious nationalism in Israel has led to like the security minister being one of the most extreme, fanatical, genocidal, anti-Palestinian figures in Israeli society. We've seen calls for a second Nakba from key allies of Netanyahu in Israeli Knesset. They're literally calling for a second Nakba for the second ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, for removing them all. We're seeing settler attacks on Palestinian motorists, as we saw, uh, as we see in every one of these military escalations. Uh, settlers are invading Palestinian towns in the Negev. Those towns, uh, Sterot, Ashkelon in the south, their mayors are consistently the first to call for devastating airstrikes on the Gaza Strip whenever anything happens uh, because they were put there in the 1950s as a human wall against Gaza to have that specific effect. And that was, you know, before they built walls, they used their poorest citizens as a human wall. So psychologically, for Netanyahu, who understands the Israeli psyche as well as any politician Israel has ever had, there needs to be blood. There needs to be a massive, massive response. Civilians need to be killed. People need to see people in Gaza crying into the air, holding their dead children before they can do anything political, anything diplomatic. Qatar is behind the scenes pushing really hard for a prisoner exchange. But Israel can't do that until the public mood is satiated. We saw, for example, in 2014, Israeli citizens go to what's uh, known as the, what from the outside is the Hill of Shame. I've been there and they watch the strikes on lawn chairs on Gaza and they cheer with each, with each one. You can go look up the video of in, that. In Sterot. In Sterot. Okay, so that's the mentality. And that's, this. Is, so, so what I think will happen, what could happen if there isn't a massive ground invasion that goes all the way to Gaza or Hezbollah comes in is just massive death. And then Israel has to start the ugly business of negotiating for its captives. 
which is why the captives were taken in the first place is it's the only way that they can get concessions. Okay, now to the other point that I wanted to make uh, and before we move on is the, 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 the psychology from inside Gaza. Unbelievable, not just teen suicide rates, but child suicide rates because of the misery and hopelessness of siege. I've been to Gaza and spent sustained time there twice and gotten to meet so many people up and down the strip. And so I've met suicidal people. I've met people who can't leave. I spent a night on a fishing boat with the fisherman who said he has never left that small strip of land. And as he was telling me that, maybe 15 minutes afterwards, an Israeli naval boat came up and threatened to shoot him and open fire on his boat if he continued because they didn't want him to get to where the deep waters where the good fish is. He came back with like almost nothing. Um, you just meet so many people across Gaza who have suffered so immensely and every young man there who has lost a relative in an Israeli assault, and there are so many of them, they all want to join the, the, the Mukawama, the resistance. And that's how they understand it is just resisting. And why do they resist? You ask them, do they say, oh, I want to kill Jews. I hate the Jews. No, they say, we want to get our rights back. That's what everyone will tell you. Um, you know, there is just an epidemic of, of, that's, of, of hopelessness and anguish and despair that's flooded across Gaza. And so many people have experienced so much death. You see, every time you go out of your house or your apartment in Gaza, you'll just see young men missing their legs, missing an arm, people hobbling around, people with horrific injuries. This is from Israeli bombings. And where do the Palestinian rockets come from? They're often repurposed Israeli munitions, giant US missiles that were dumped on Gaza and they failed to explode. There's just so many, so much explosives have been dropped on that small territory that they started turning it into rockets to fight back. So for them, when you see them celebrate even civilians being humiliated, they see the, that, that as a form of retribution for the suffering that they've experienced in total silence and darkness while no one in any Western capital has ever stepped in to stop Israel. This is a total failure of American leadership to allow Palestinians to be treated this way while it has the ability to stop it. It has the ability to sanction Israel. And what well, does it do? As soon as they break out of their prison that they've been held in, as soon as they break out of their internment camp, the US and EU sanction Palestine. They go out and call them the invaders. And so they see that and they're like, to hell with America, to hell with all of you. We don't care about your opinion. We're going to go out and we're going to get it done and we're going to change the rules of the game. And so when you see something horrific, like the captives being humiliated on their way back to Gaza, and you complain about that and you go on Twitter and you say, how could anyone celebrate that? Where were you? When Salem Shamali was killed on camera by an Israeli sniper while he was looking for his wounded and dying cousin in his house. Where were you? Where were well, you when, when Huda Galia was filmed crying over her dead family when Israel went with naval attack boats in 2007 and shelled the beaches of Gaza while people were just sitting there with their families. Her whole family was blown up in front of her. You can watch it. Just look up Huda Galia right now on YouTube. Just look up the footage of her crying over her dead family. Where were you? Where were all these little punks who were like crying 
denouncing everyone for trying to put this into context, denouncing Palestinians and their supporters for going out and protesting. The mayor of Toronto has canceled protests in Toronto. Where were they? They don't care about these people. They see them as Yoav Gallant, the Israeli defense minister, called them as human animals. You're disgusting. Let me show a short clip from the film that I made about the killing of Gaza. It's called The Killing of Gaza. I directed it. I worked on it with Dan Cohen. And this is a, why, why, why do they fight? Why do they fight? Well, here's an interview with members of the Nasser Salahuddin Brigades. You can watch this whole film, Killing Gaza, on our channel at The Gray Zone. It's about the aftermath of the 2014 war and siege. And we'll show interviews with fighters from the Nasser Saladin brigades. These are volunteer fighters, like weekend warriors, kind of like Gaza's National Guard. And they explain why they're fighting. And then we'll hear from a young man who lost his older brother, who says that he wants to be a fighter. You can see he's trying to push his way. I mean, they're they're learning the most basic tactics. These are just regular guys. Come on, get out faster. We're not born fighters. We are human beings like everyone else. We're kinder than other people. We are patient and we endure. We see our martyrs, our brothers in pieces and blood, and we endure. We endure because our goal is bigger than one person. We defend a cause, a doctrine, and a homeland stolen from us. We join Salahuddin brigades to liberate our land and let our martyrs rest in their graves. We walk on the path of martyrs and leaders who came before us to liberate Jerusalem and all of Palestine from the occupation. We expect that at any moment the fourth war will be waged on Gaza, which is what is happening now. Within the next six or seven years, we expect everything at the end of the 2014 war. The resistance was ready to fight in the war several years, not months, for several years, not months or days. They humiliate us, they destroy mosques, they slaughter our children. The world sees it all and does nothing. But we here in Al-Nasr Battalions, any resistance group, anyone who says I'm a Muslim should defend the Palestinian people.
can see the shoes they're wearing. Men were seen with bare feet entering the Nahalaz base on October 7th, literally with no shoes. Nearly a year after we first met the family of Salah. So this is a, an interview that I think is really important for everyone to see. It's with a boy or a teenager named Wasim Shamali, who I had met in his home after his brother was killed on camera by an Israeli sniper in the rubble of Shujaia while he was looking for his wounded cousin. Uh, our friend Joe Katrin was actually a, a volunteer who was there. At, at, happened to be in Gaza at the time and witnessed it as well. Um, you can go online and find video of this. I'm not gonna play the video of the shooting because again, YouTube rules. Um, but this is a follow-up interview with Wasim Shamali who is crying so openly about his brother being killed in his first interview with us. And he talks about what he wants to do with his future. And I think we should think about this and how these young men who stormed into Israeli territory on October 7th how they were formed and how they think and what they really, where, where they really come from. Because our media and the Israeli government sees them as nothing but human animals. So let's actually look at them as human beings. Alam Shamali, the young man who was executed on camera by an Israeli sniper. We visited his younger brother, Wasim, who explained to us how the pain of loss had only deepened since the war. I don't know how to go out and have fun anymore. There's a wedding reception festive. I don't attend. I just go, stand around for a little while, and then go home. Everything is hard, whether I'm at school, at home, or walking. After the war in Salem's death, I'm not comfortable anymore. Before the war, there were normal days. I could go out and play. We, could, we would go everywhere, but after the war, when he was killed, we stopped going out. We go out, just right outside the house. We go to this cemetery every Friday to visit him, and I go home. I want to join the resistance to take revenge on those who murdered him. I just want to join for Stalin, for my brother and the Palestinian people. Everyone who has lost a sibling wants to join the resistance. My friends in the mosque who have killed brothers want to join the resistance. They want to avenge their brothers and get their siblings' blood back from the occupier. So that you can see Killing Gaza on YouTube for free right now at our channel. And that's, that's what's being kept from Americans and Europeans, is why they fight, why Palestinians in Gaza fight. It's not to kill Jews. It's to get their rights and their dignity back after watching their family members blown to pieces while the world is silent. And that's not me talking, that's them in their own voices. Uh, wanna bring in Anya Parampil now, who's got a lot to say as well. Um, thank you all for staying with the stream. How's it going, Anya? It's going well. How are you guys? Hey, Anya. We're uh, 
as Wyatt likes to say, we're hanging in there. Yeah, it's definitely been one of those news cycles where the last few days I'm just extra on the edge and have this weird adrenaline and obsession with trying to figure out everything that's going on and just Palestine always does that, I, I find. And it's exhausting on a day-to-day -day basis, as you know, we talk about sometimes to keep track of every injustice that Israelis impose upon Palestinians just on a daily basis. That's why I'm so grateful for outlets like Mondo Weiss or Electronic Intifada that for so long would do the just the daily journaling of what it is that Palestinians go through. Because when when moments like this happen, it's so important that we have a record. And I get fatigued sometimes. You know, we're not covering Palestine or Israel constantly the way that other organizations are, but I see the constant demolitions and killing of children and and persecution that that Palestinians face. That is why we're we're at this moment now. It feels as though you know, everything's bubbling up and it is bubbling up in an unprecedented way. And that that is scary. Well, Anya, you were able to go to Gaza in 2018 and report from there. I mean, just really quickly, did this surprise you based on what you saw in Gaza? No, I mean, anyone who has been to Gaza, your only question would be, how has this gone on for so long, honestly? I mean, if you've been to Gaza and you've seen it, then the news of October 7th, when that comes down, it's kind of like, well, it was only a matter of time, if anything, what took them so long, because I swear, anyone, especially if you are an American, where you are taught that it is your duty to resist and fight back against a system and a structure that is oppressing you and, and denying your humanity, what are really your God-given rights as a human, that it doesn't come from a state, it doesn't even come from the UN, that it comes from the love that you have for your family and your wish to provide for your family. And every human deserves that. Yeah. That is everything that Israel stands against, that the Israel wages a war on humanity every day from the moment <laughs> that it that the Nakba began in, in 1948. So Americans in particular, I feel like should understand actually they need to learn about what it is that palestinians go through because you think king george was bad and that the american revolutionary war anything was justified well israel and, and netanyahu <laughs> they put everyone to shame in terms of just evil and depravity so well, on that point, I want to ask, because in 2018, 2019, we had what was called the Great March of Return. And so you have all these kind of liberal pundits, whatever, conservatives, too, on Twitter. They're kind of talking about, oh, well, why weren't they nonviolent? And so the natural response to me is kind of, well, like they have been for, for they would say, far too long. And the specific example of the Great March of Return led to something like 10,000 Palestinians injured. Uh, 6,000 of them being hit by live ammunition, Hundred over 100 paramedics, over 100 journalists, 200 plus Palestinians killed. 
one single Israeli soldier injured from like a rock or something. So, I mean, what, what was the sense when you were there? What, what, what did that look like? We, and, and Max was with me then because I was working for RT and he actually, we came and produced that, that content for me because there was obviously no one better to do it. And so we were there in February of 2018. That was several months before the Great March of Return popped off, which based on my experience and Max, I'm sure would agree it was no surprise that then the Great March of Return happened just a few months later because what we saw was the level of humanitarian catastrophe and collapse that was the reality in Gaza. Uh, there were, Israel had bombed the main electricity plant during the previous war. So by then there were, ra they were rationing electricity that just with fuel that they were getting in from Qatar and other uh, allies but electricity wasn't functioning the hospitals were overloaded with waste in fact max i think you can pull up one of the reports that i i labeled it in the document uh, electricity shortage i think that yeah. will show the extent of the the humanitarian devastation just the the war on humanity that was the reality in gaza then which is what led to the Great March of Return, which was, yes, this peaceful attempt to to get attention to their plight. So here's my report. Well, here you are. at the. This is at the uh, Italian compound, which is a residential tower bombed by Israel in 2014. In the Gaza Strip, where for the next couple of days, I'll be reporting on an unprecedented humanitarian crisis. Behind me is what's left of the Italian compound, which was once a 15-story high residential tower. It was targeted and destroyed by the Israeli Air Force during the 2014 assault on the Gaza Strip. Since that war ended, conditions here in this besieged coastal enclave have reached their worst point in history. The crisis is due to a shortage of medicine and medical supplies, so 45% of Gaza's patients are not receiving the treatment they need. Also, we are having a severe crisis of fuel. The international organizations that are in charge of providing fuel to the hospitals are saying that we only have enough fuel until the middle of March. Behind me, you can see piles of medical waste. That's because sanitation workers have been particularly hit. This is at the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City, and we went there and there were just piles and piles of waste because the sanitation workers, I think, were uh, un unable to get paid. And all the all the waste from the dialysis machines was just lying around in the alley. I mean, it was horrible. Hit by these cuts, leaving these men to clean up the mess at Al Shiva Hospital as volunteers. Also, we have a crisis of cleaning in the health facilities. We have piles of trash inside the rooms of patients in the intensive care unit, dialysis unit and the maternity wards so that it's threatening the health providers and the medical staff can't deal with the patients. In another world, this place would be known for its beautiful beaches. But standing on the Mediterranean in this reality, one's greeted by an unusual smell. That's because due to electricity shortages, it's increasingly impossible for Gaza to properly treat its sewage. So it's pumped raw, straight into the sea. Residents tell me when the waves are calm, 
waste spreads on the water as far as the eye can see. So that, that the seashore and the sea is the only location where people take just that pipe right there was raw sewage pouring out into the sea and it just smelled absolutely horrible there and go in in gaza it is closed every from every side sea is the only location so you can imagine uh, more than 90 percent of the sea the gaza seashore is not suitable for people just to stand on it not to swim just to so the point he was making is, you know, the only place people in Gaza can escape is the beach and there's just raw sewage pouring out there because they have nowhere else to pour out the sewage. So 90% of the beach is unusable. I mean, and you could just look at Gaza from any angle. It's uninhabitable. It's a complete horror show that of, of Israel's making and of the making of the United States. Anya, um, I want to get your reaction to some of the well, do, do you want to play this the other report? I feel like that one is also because it just shows how just every aspect of life in Gaza is hell. I mean, what I just showed you there was hell. But pull up the second report, Max, about right. the health denials. This this and now tell me watching what you just saw or what you're about to see any viewer ask yourself what would you do if you were forced to live under these conditions just ask yourself what you would do especially as i said americans where we are taught that we have the right and moral obligation to resist so this is uh about how the blockade is denying people basic cancer well, care just if you are in Gaza, your movement is controlled by a foreign power. So Israel has to give you permission just to leave. There's no way out. There's no way out. Here we go. In the Gaza Strip, electricity shortages have already pushed hospitals near collapse, forcing doctors to deny patients basic medical procedures. Now imagine you have a disease like cancer. You have to get through this gate as well as the heavily militarized Israeli-controlled border fence on the other side, just to receive life-saving treatment. According to a new report released by human rights groups, last year the Israelis denied a record amount of permits, leading to the deaths of over 50 Gaza residents. According to a joint study released by several human rights groups, including Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and Gaza's Almazan Center for Human Rights, Israel approved only 54% of permits for medical appointments in 2017, the lowest rate since the World Health Organization began keeping track of the data. Zakia Tafish's husband, Jamil, is one of those numbers. Two months before July of last year, my husband went to the hospital and they discovered that his cancer had returned and they started to give him treatment and medicine, but it didn't work. They said he needs surgery and every time he got an appointment to get surgery, the hospital postponed it because they said the only solution is to leave Gaza, but he wasn't able to leave Gaza because he wasn't allowed. 
He got a referral to a hospital in Jerusalem, and every time he wanted to travel, the Israeli border was closed. Every time he wanted to travel, they closed the border and make an excuse. For Jamil Tafish, the denial of this life-saving permit was only the final chapter in a long struggle with Israeli control. During the 2014 war, we evacuated the house to my daughter's place in downtown, and when we returned, we found it completely destroyed. My husband became consumed with rage, and his cancer came back. We became homeless. And when we finally rebuilt the house, he wasn't able to enjoy it. In a short while, I'll be leaving the Gaza Strip. As a member of the foreign media, it wasn't difficult for me to secure this pass from the Israeli government, guaranteeing my travel to and from the territory. But for too many Palestinians, even those diagnosed with life-threatening illnesses, there's no such magic pass. Only a death sentence handed down by an ever-present occupation. So yeah, I mean, imagine... Imagine you, you're one of your relatives that you care about has cancer and some foreign power tells you, you can't leave your city. You can't leave your neighborhood. And that, Sorry. And that, they just have to that, die there. That same foreign power doesn't let any of the medical equipment that is necessary to treat you in. Like they don't have sovereignty. They don't, they don't exist except in so far as Israel allows them to. And so, yeah, I mean, I remember when we went, when we went in and we're talking to the Almazan Center and other human rights groups in Gaza, we would ask, are people not able to get out to get life-saving medical care? They said, how many people do you want to meet? I mean, we didn't have time to meet all the people who had relatives who had died just in agony because they could not get cancer treatment. So that, so is, that is why that is why this is happening. Uh, it suddenly it's kind of similar to Ukraine where suddenly there's this invasion and everybody thinks a war and all this atrocity just began instead of understanding this is a history of this pot that was bubbling over in, in, in Palestine. And Sam Husseini, a friend of ours, he tweeted out something that was accurate, I think, where he said Palestinians are basically saying, give me liberty or give me death. And I think, especially in the United States, we can't make that point enough. So, Anya, here's uh, the pride of the Indian-American diaspora, Nikki Haley. Because I want the American people to kind of take this in for a second. Just imagine that here the Israelis woke up and communities were bombarded. Families were murdered. Women and children were taken hostage, dragged through the streets. The elderly were taken. All of this has happened in front of everyone on top of thousands of rockets that hit Israel. This should be personal for every woman and man in America. Why? Because when they did this, when they did this surprise attack, when they took these hostages, when they murdered these families, they were celebrating. And what were they celebrating? They were saying death to Israel, death to America. This is not just an attack on Israel. This is an attack on America because they hate us just as much. And what we have to understand is this is the reason that we have to unite around making sure our enemies do not hurt our friends. America can never be so arrogant to think we don't need friends, just like we needed them on 9-11. That's why Ukraine needs us when Russia's doing this. That's why Israel needs us when Hamas and Iran are doing this. And I'll say this to, to Prime Minister Netanyahu, finish them. 
Finish them. Hamas did this. You know Iran's behind it. Finish them. They should have hell to pay for what they've just done. Finish them. Finish them. What does that like, mean to like, finish them? Like genocide. Uh, there are too many like bad jokes that I can make about her, but... It's like Mortal this, Kombat. It's like no one would know your name if the Israel lobby hadn't funded your campaigns. Like she's completely just a robot with a chip in her brain implanted there by the Israel lobby. I mean, what else does is Nikki Haley's record? Her only, she, she Max could talk about this more because he's very, uh, always on top of uh, who exactly is funding who, particularly when it comes to Israel. But she pretty much was just crafted as as a brown female face for the Zionist lobby. And she was put in the position of UN ambassador under Trump. That was to give her some sort of credibility because until then she'd only been a governor. Totally unqualified to sit at the UN in New York and represent the United States and was a complete embarrassment uh, if, if Max comes back. Hopefully we can play the video of her at the United Nations. Yes, Max is back. So can you pull up that UN Nikki Haley yeah. video? Because After the Alpha report, After I also stop talking so we can act I want to actually listen to the report because it is funny. But this is how embarrassing it was when Nikki Haley was the US ambassador to the United Nations. She was on her knees for Israel not for the United States, not leading some amazing uh, declaration authored by the United States about something regarding the United States. No, on her knees for Israel. Watch. Nikki Haley came here determined to thwart a resolution drafted by Kuwait that called for measures to protect the people of Gaza. She tried persuasion going around other members of the Security Council. <laughs> Here, as she approached the ambassador of Peru, she can be seen mouthing the word, please. Please. A warm greeting oh, for Israel's ambassador, <laughs> Danny Danon. Uh, He's surely so aware much. she also had procedural tricks <laughs> up her sleeve. She wanted her oh, to be the written version of the resolution, classed as an amendment so it would be voted on first. There were heated discussions among ambassadors. There's Russia's ambassador leading. Everyone's Russia watching ruled against right. Russian ambassador. And, and no such reception for Nikki. She pleaded <laughs> with council members to support her draft resolution and reject Kuwait's. We strongly encourage this council to vote against Kuwait's resolution and acknowledge the concerns of Hamas by voting for the U.S. resolution. Each of you have a choice. You either support Hamas or not. This vote will tell the story. So, what year I mean, was she was that? that was uh 2018, I think. I expected that to be the video that was going to get us demonetized after the intro about Nikki Haley on her knees for Israel. Yeah, that's 2018. Uh, you know, she was prepping the greasing the skids for her presidential campaign, which was going to be completely funded by neocon Likudnik billionaires like Paul Singer. Yep. Yep. I mean, 
it, that's why I, it, I thought it was important to bring up her specifically and to hear hear her saying that what she said is so great finish them like who is she to say that she just sent off another crazy tweet right before i came on saying something similar but it is worth noting how the un is this hot zone for the israel issue which you know the un created israel in 1948 but now it's this place where there's a constant back and forth and the u.s and the West can never really totally win on Israel at the UN now because the global South and Russia and powers that are more sympathetic to the Palestinian cause do have veto power and sway. And so I just wanted to make the, the note actually that if you remember the initial scandal surrounding Donald Trump, when Russiagate fully actually went into effect as an intelligence operation in January uh, 2017, after Trump was sworn into office, it began with the controversy around Michael Flynn making a phone call to the Russian ambassador to the United States uh, in December, so between the election and the inauguration, to have a conversation about U.S.-Russia policy. And, and while that conversation just the fact that it happened was used as the basis to accuse trump of collaborating with russia and having some crazy pro-russia bend we know because of courts and the evidence that came out that michael flynn was absurdly during that phone call actually asking russia to veto a u.n resolution condemning israeli settlement activity illegal israeli settlement activity in the west bank and so while the media and the historical legacy there now in the mainstream is oh that phone call and flynn they were proving uh, prove that and jared kushner put him up to it he was exactly. doing it and and who put jared kushner up to it netanyahu benjamin Netanyahu. So he was exactly. doing it on behalf of netanyahu through the presidential son-in-law who was a vehicle for israeli infiltration of american politics yes and israel exactly. gate not that russia gate Exactly. That's what it was. It was Israel gate. It was Israeli infiltration. I mean, this isn't even crazy to say Netanyahu is someone who slept in Jared Kushner's childhood bed when he was growing up. Literally, when he was visiting the United States, Jared Kushner would have to go sleep somewhere else because Bibi was in town. So <laughs> that, to say that he represented Israeli infiltration of the Trump administration is not far-fetched. It's not anti-Semitic. And we know based on even just that, there he was working in the U.S. government, telling the U.S. National Security Advisor, incoming National Security Advisor, to call Russia and lobby Russia on behalf of Israel. I mean, the Russians must have been floored, if not laughing amongst themselves by the, at the idea that Michael Flynn even thought that they had that ability. Um, so, I mean, again, that's why since we were watching the UN Nikki Haley clip, it just reminded me of how I guess in some ways Israel does really care about the UN, but it will always lose there. Yeah. Uh, increasingly, we're going to see it as it, and, and, and it, we also should mention that Israel's blocked over these past years, all diplomatic routes for Palestinians using the U.S. I mean, this is about blocking Palestinian diplomatic routes to relieve even a relaxation of the occupation, making 
October 7th, what took place on October 7th, inevitable. And now here's one of the bigger fanatics in the U.S. security punditocracy and security establishment, General Jack Keane of the Institute for the Study of War, which is uh, the main think tank of the Kagan neocon family. Uh, it's run by Kimberly Kagan, the sister of Bob Kagan, who's married to the Deputy Secretary of State, Victoria Newland. And Jack Keane has also been a paid agent of the Iranian MEK, which is itself paid by Israel and the Saudis. And here he is calling for a ground. In I would just I would just stress you to pay attention to uh, the oh, time no. codes, because otherwise it will be a long clip. I'm time here. Frame. I think what has happened here, and it's, it's not well publicized, is some at times the political leadership really wanted the IDF to go back in and occupy, and they've always resisted it. If, we're, if we are serious about eliminating Hamas, then the IDF has to occupy Gaza and systematically go about eliminating them with the cooperation of the people. Now, the people here can be what? exploited in a positive way because they've been repressed. They don't have anything to show for the life that they have. What a moron. I mean, he I know, thinks that, people, what a complete idiot. But they can be exploited in a positive way. So there's a silver lining. Did he not see what just happened in the last 48 hours? <laughs> uh, uh, play the next clip because it continues the thought and it shows you, just note the disconnect. We just watched Israel get humiliated. The Palestinian resistance in Gaza is in a better position now than ever before. I mean, just from a military perspective, now having all these hostages scattered throughout the territory, saying that they're going to execute one every time Israel bombs. Israel can't necessarily just go in and destroy everything the way they want to because they are going to have to worry about killing their own citizens. So Israel is in a really bad position. And yet, notice how somehow optimistic General Keene is about their capability. Iraq, particularly, and we use those skill sets in, in Afghanistan. So we'll see. I, I, I hope the Israelis do what I'm suggesting here, <laughs> reoccupy and systematically go about it. If they make a race to the coastline a week or two weeks, uh, destroy missiles and rocket launchers, that's not going to eliminate that's not Hamas. They'll, that's not enough. That's not enough. They're I mean, going to come back. That's not you're enough. talking about what could be bloody street battles, urban warfare. Oh, house yeah. House, like we this saw guy's getting Fallujah. a thrill up his leg. Yeah, right. He said like Fallujah like that okay. I, I think if they get the cooperation of the people there's no cooperation of the people, <laughs> there's going to be no cooperation of the people dummies like that anyone well, who cooperates is going to be highly shot. skilled many of them speak the language uh they have people who have relationships uh, uh with palestinians their informant network which for some reason didn't predict this for some reason has been usually some reason it didn't work but let's for some reason, the informant We're lean on it anyway. Work, exactly. Let's depend on it during a occupation of Gaza. That'll work. Otherwise, it's going to be street fighting like Fallujah. No big deal. Yeah, during Fallujah, when the U.S. Right military did a shake and bake operation where it dumped white phosphorus on the entire city. By the <laughs> way, mean, Israel is using white phosphorus again, internationally it's banned. Be, it's not going to be Fallujah. Well, they're much stronger in Gaza than they were than these this isolated Al Qaeda. Their military wasn't disbanded and dismantled by the United States. 
Yeah. I mean, so, what are they thinking, Max? You know this stuff more than anyone, really, because of yeah. your experience covering the war. Well, I mean, anyone that we're having on the gray zone right now, more than <laughs> Wyatt, because you've covered the previous war and you wrote books about just Israeli political structure, society. How, I mean, isn't what General Jack Keane said, what do you think about the prospects of Israelis being able to go in there, use their intelligence networks, go door to door and actually stomp out the resistance? Well, first, when Israel announced its ground invasion, the last ground invasion in 2014, which mainly sought bring soldiers into Shujaia east of Gaza City, but also other border areas uh, like the border area of Han Yunus in the southeast, um, um, Hosea or uh, Beit Hanun, the response of the spokesman for the Al-Qassam Brigades, Abu Obaida, was one line, we're waiting for you. Uh, because his, from his point of view, that put Israel at a strategic disadvantage. And that was borne out through the amount of casualties that Israel took when the armed factions in Gaza were at a much weaker point than they currently are. At the same time, the Israeli military high command had a meeting in Hakiria, which is the defense headquarters in Tel Aviv, which happens to be nestled among civilian structures, kind of like using them as human shields, and is a potential target for a Hezbollah attack uh, if they actually have missiles. I mean, if, if this is a side note, but the Palestinian factions are able to reach Tel Aviv now. Imagine what a powerful faction like Hezbollah could do. Anyway, they had a meeting there and they gamed out a march to Gaza City and an occupation of Gaza City because there was similar pressure, including from morons like Jack Keane. And they decided that it would be akin to Stalingrad. That was actually the word, one of the words used in this meeting as reported by Israeli media, Stalingrad. And I think that's what we would see. And the Palestinian population would participate on a mass scale in resisting any, any incursion into Gaza City. When you see um, images of Palestinians celebrating the end of these military escalations, they come out of their homes with automatic weapons. These are weapons that are kept in homes with other small arms that are even that that are that are kept there. Um, and it would just engulf Israeli soldiers to attempt to occupy that area. It would also, another thing I could uh, compare it to would be the uh, first attempt by Russia to pacify Chechnya. <laughs> it would be a disaster. And, 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 and who's to say they're not stupid enough to do it? Oh, I mean, it, and the, there's no question now that Hezbollah has already said that we're a part of this war. I mean, there's, I don't think there's really any question about what Hezbollah will do. And I, I know I, I'm also talking to people all throughout the region. I have good contacts, people that are in Palestine, people that are in Syria, people that are in Africa, and I'm talking about officials in government. So I, I try to ask them what they think and what they see and what's going on. And I, there is no, I don't think in the region, any question that Hezbollah will step up. The bigger questions are what are the higher up powers? What is really going, like what is, for example, Erdogan in Turkey thinking? What is Mohammed bin Salman in Riyadh thinking? These are 
the questions that I think I have. Those are the people that people in the region have, but there's no question about how, if, if Israel wants, and Ben Shapiro just tweeted this ridiculous meme of like a chart going up and it's like F around, find out, like Hamas is going to F around and find out. Israel, this is the definition of Israel effing around and finding out. Like if Israel wants to go into Gaza and find out, uh, I don't think it's going to be pretty. And it, it's not just the, a big, a, a major talking point and propaganda line that I heard watching the major networks yesterday, especially on Fox, was that, and of course, so many stupid Republicans have made this point too, that this is somehow an Iranian war, that Iran is supporting Hamas so much that it's it's that more that Hamas or that Israel is at war with Iran right now, and that Iran is celebrating this and saying death to America. Look, it's not only Iran. Iran is not the only country in the region that is celebrating this. In fact, if you took away the governments of Jordan and Egypt and Morocco, all throughout North Africa, down the African continent, all throughout the Middle East, down over to India, again, where maybe the government has a different relationship. The people, the people are on the side of Palestine. There is no question. I've been to these places enough. I've talked to enough people around the world. The debates that we have of like, oh, Hamas, da, 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 it just doesn't, doesn't land elsewhere and the Hasbara, the propaganda now, the media, the putting out saying, look at these Israeli civilians suffering, look at this, look at that. It doesn't work in the rest of the world because the rest of the world also sees the images of Palestine that we in the United States never get to see. And that's that's the difference. Yep. Yep. So and I that the meme of of Iran kind of being behind all of this, I think it has as its origins this wall street journal article that's now discredited wall street journal article that was headlined uh iran helped plot attack on israel over several weeks they make these very strange claims for example that the iranian foreign minister himself personally flew to beirut to oversee meetings between uh let's see between hamas palestinian islamic jihad the pflp the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Lions Den, and Hezbollah. Somehow the Iranian foreign minister himself made this trip. Well, and so what if he else did? picked up on it. Well, it's so just, what if he did? I don't I, I think I, I think it's it's theoretically possible, but that's a, a figure that if he he had just fly around unnoticed by Israeli intelligence, US intelligence just wandering through Beirut. Well, how, did I mean, they, I, how did they get it in the Wall Street? All right. Well, the, the point is that they're trying to gin up. They're trying to bring Iran into the equation because there's pressure. They're trying to put pressure on the Biden administration to authorize regime change in Iran, yeah. to authorize a regime change war. And that's what this is about. And the reporter is suspect. Uh, here's uh, the main Andrew McGregor Marshall. The main reporter on this story, Summer said, has a history of dishonesty and inventing stories. I fired her from Reuters in 2008 for this reason. I'm surprised that the Wall Street Journal has hired her and is publishing her stories that are clearly bogus. And for all we know, this story was fed through Israeli intelligence channels. 
Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's like the, the Salome uh, thing, the fake Hamas oh, yeah. sources. Well, that was all fed through, sources. That that was all fed like, through a that fixer. Was, that was very fake. The, right. Just so on that's that, who's cited in this, too. Like, Hamas sources, it's like, okay, if you say so. Meaning Israeli. So, right. I mean, the thing about, I don't, I don't know. I don't know whether or not that meeting happened. I totally don't discount that that meeting happened. And if that meeting happened, meetings, I, think, they say happened. I think good for, I mean, Iran has the right to meet with all of those groups. Hamas is the elected government of Gaza, even though they have no sovereignty. And they have every right to have relationships with whoever they want to build an alliance and fund their resistance. I mean, that's what we do with Israel. So. I would not personally, and I don't know what Max or others think, and I would like to hear, I personally don't think that Hamas would have gone forward with this level of operation, this very successful operation without definitely Hezbollah being in the loop, but other regional players as well. I don't know who or what. And I think, you know, when I was watching CNN last night, even they are starting, like the realists, are starting to worry, thinking, okay, if this really does become a regional war, I heard someone say this could be bringing the Syrian army. The Syrian army has been confronting Israel in its own territory for all these decades, including the last 10 years. And so that's it's confronting Israel right now in Idlib, we could say. Yeah, or the Golan Heights are an issue that come right into the picture if a regional war is going to, to play out. And, you know, my impression, having spent a lot of time in the region, ha having good contacts, sources all throughout governments, everybody has been waiting for the big war. Everyone knows that it was only, I mean, Israel is a, it's, it's a box of matches wait, with a bunch of gasoline poured on it, just waiting for a flame to light it up. That's the, the, Israel was only moving in one direction, all right? And it, it's not peace. So at some point, I don't know if this is the war. I think this has the possibility to be the war because of what we're already seeing in the region. It was only a matter of time, a lot of people believe, before Israel got a serious bloody nose and more that it has never really experienced. It's not used to fighting a real army. Uh, in, no. in Palestine no, or in the Israeli, all the American soldiers children. who go sign up to go be helicopter pilots and have some little fantasy in Israel are not going to want to fight that war. And the Israeli civilians, the minute they feel a slice of what Palestinians feel on a on a daily basis, they'll probably want to like, leave because they're like not the American mercenaries. They're going to go back to Israel. All right. Well, I got a yeah. Right. It's like the American mercenaries that went to Ukraine thinking that they were going to be fighting goat herders and sandals because that's all we fought for the past 20 years in the Middle East. And then yeah. they found out, oh, you guys have artillery too. Right. We got a hard stop in, in, in five minutes. So, um, Wyatt, any, any, any closing thoughts? Well, uh, I would just say, um, you know, this is something that clearly – Clearly, the Israelis have brought upon themselves, specifically the Knights, the the Netanyahu faction. Um, we know that they wanted to establish Hamas as a counterweight 
to the secular socialist FATA PLO kind of uh, segment. Um, and they have, you know, we have numerous quotes that back that up. Uh, there is a quote from Netanyahu himself talking to uh, the Likud in the Knesset in March uh, 2019. said, anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. Uh, we have a WikiLeaks uh, cable quoting the Israeli Defense Intelligence Chief in 2007. He said Israel would be happy if Hamas took over Gaza because the IDF could then deal with Gaza as a hostile state. Um, so, you know, back to this kind of point I, I referenced earlier, um, it's it's a, an opposition that rose to the position of prominence, thanks in large part due to the same Israeli government, which now labels it a terrorist faction. And Wyatt, this is a 1988 or 19, I believe it's a 1988 op-ed in the New York Times by Clinton Bailey, an alternative to the PLO, fundamentalists calling for support for the Hamas and its antecedents. Um, so yes, there is some blowback here for sure. Um, but they are popular. We have they to are say, popular, and they because have seen as a they are willing resistance. to well, because they are willing to fight and declare liberty or death. Whereas the PLO has been folded into the PA and did the Oslo Accords. They're popular because they rejected the Oslo Accords, which has set the stage for this entire catastrophe. We have about two minutes left. I wanted to make just one quick point, and Anya, you can close us out. Um, the U.S. is sending an entire carrier battle group, as we said, to protect Israel from guerrilla bands on motorcycles, hang gliders, and fishing boats. This com this proves the complete failure of Zionism, which was supposed to gather, uh, g consolidate J Jewish sovereignty, Jewish sovereignty. And now we see that Israel's survival is completely contingent on its direct line to the Gentile authorities in Washington and to the uh, mostly non-Jewish soldiers who are on a naval battle group who I doubt signed up to protect a country 5,000 miles away from the natives that it is occupying and abusing and exploiting and has been slaughtering. And we can see Israeli civilians are afraid now. They're experiencing the fear that Palestinians have felt. And this is not something to celebrate, but it's another commentary on Zionism. Zionism has failed on its most essential promise to Jews, which was to guarantee them security. There is possibly no more dangerous place on earth for Jews to be than inside Israel right now. And it's that is because of Zionism. Zionism has set them up for this. Zionism is the reason why Palestinians are being warehoused in Gaza and ghettos across the West Bank, why millions of Palestinians are living abroad and why there's this anger. And so Zionism's failure has been proven and we and and we have so we have to see it also from the philosophical standpoint and start educating people about the source of this catastrophe it's not about anti-semitism it's about this failed ideology that Israel upholds through its political and military structure anya any last words no israel was a catastrophe from the moment that it came into material reality. It's a catastrophe to this day. It is, it's, it, I mean, it, 
people might think this sounds crazy, but when I say its existence is a crime against humanity, it's true. To, in order for Israel to exist, it had to immediately commit. Well, it, its existence as an ethnocentric or, or an, as an ethnocracy. Just to clear uh, people out of their homes and establish the quote unquote Jewish state was an act of violence against hundreds and thousands of people in entire land. So, I mean, it's Indigenous People's Day, I saw according to Kamala Harris's Twitter. So it's a great day to stand with the Palestinian resistance uh, that is trying to fight for the sovereignty of their land. And I don't know if you want to close with the, I right before I joined the stream, I saw this tweet from Zelensky where he's actually now running out with in one of his like makeshift suit or like war suit ensemble to say that he has evidence that Russia is driving this war in the Middle East, that Russia is driving Hamas to have this war with Israel. And there are now these reports coming out that Russia is given weapons from the Ukraine front to Hamas in order to embarrass the United States. That's the line, the Hasbara Zionists. Well, you know, I'm not going to, I mean, I'm glad you reminded us about Zelensky and his attempts to garner well, attention, to say but I'm not going to show Zelensky. Uh, we're not going to th think about Zelensky for once. I would like to see less Zelensky. In fact, I want Zelensky's. Zelensky needs to go away and, and, and take off his little GI Joe pajamas after dodging the draft three times and just be a normal person and go away, go get some Netflix series and move to your condo in Miami or whatever. No, I'm mean, going to close. Sorry. I, we have a hard stop. So I got to close trial, it now. But... We, we, we have to end right now. And I want to end it by reminding people of what Palestinians are going through, what they've been going through. This is, this is what we need to be thinking about. This is why this is happening. And this is a father saying goodbye to his daughter for the last time after she was killed in an Israeli airstrike. Today, he's telling her goodnight. Here with the total silence of Western capitals, with the total silence of all the Zionist Hasbro trolls who are howling about how they're the victims. And nobody cares about this father. He's nameless. He's totally nameless and invisible to the West. This is why Palestinians resist. Imagine that's your daughter. And he's calling for resistance because that's the only way he's going to get his dignity back. So we'll be back with Operation. We'll be back later this week with more from Operation Gaza Truth Flood because the truth needs to come out. People need to see the reality behind the propaganda that we're being fed day after day after day here in the West. And that's why we're here. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you to Wyatt Reed and Anya Parampil. And um, thank you for liking the stream subscribing, whatever. We're going to be back this week. Peace.